I take it they don't. There I am. <laughs> Hello and welcome to uh, Celebration Church for our Wednesday night Bible study. I want to welcome all of you over in Green Bay and our campus over at uh, uh, Stevens Point as well. We are in Appleton at our campus, downtown Appleton. It's a beautiful facility. And the crowd goes wild. And uh, we're getting ready for our Laugh Your Way to a Better Marriage seminar this weekend here in Appleton. So all the cameras and stuff are here and we're getting everything all tweaked out. So we thought we'd uh, do a test and run the Bible study from Appleton tonight. Welcome to all those who watch via the internet as well. People all over the world who watch this thing. It's uh, fun to watch and run into them as I travel all over the place who say on a regular basis they watch all our services, which is just fascinating to me. So anyway, we are going through the New Testament one book at a time, starting at the book of Acts. Acts, the first chapter, first verse, and going from there, every time during we hit a spot in the book of Acts where it is said that one of the epistles were written, we'd go to that epistle and read it and then continue back in the book of Acts. And what we're doing is we're putting it all in order for some bizarre reason, and I have no idea why. The Bible is, by and large, not in order. Uh, the New Testament, it really doesn't matter that much. The Old Testament is very confusing <laughs> because it's all jacked up. It'd be so much easier if it was actually in order. If you read the Bible as written, one book after the other, you'll really be confused because they jump all over. Historically, they're jumping all over the place. It would have been nice if they would have put it in order. Actually, you can get Bibles that are put in order already for you, and that kind of helps to read it. The New Testament, though, it's, it's not that historical, so it doesn't really matter. It helps a little bit, I think, but it's nice to be able to go through it and actually see in the order that this was written what was going on. Where we're at now is Paul is on his uh, third missionary journey, his final missionary journey as he's uh, landed in uh, Jerusalem and been arrested. And they dragged him off to Caesarea to stand trial. <clears throat> and uh, so Paul gets uh, to uh, Caesarea and while he's there, uh, one of the governors, Felix, I think is his name, Felix and Festus, Festus, Felix, I don't really sound like cats to me, but one of them. Uh, and he's there, and then he gets re replaced by the other guy. We'll read it in just a minute. And then, uh, but all this takes years. So he's there for several years as he's waiting for his case to be heard. He's under house arrest. He doesn't have the freedom to go wherever he wants to go. And uh, so uh, while he's there, he writes this letter to the Philippians. Philippia is in, uh, over here in Macedonia, which is Greece. And uh, so he writes it back to them from here touching base with them, <clears throat> he's uh, appealing to them uh, to love each other. He says, you want to encourage me? Be nice to each other. Love each other. Be kind to each other. The more that you're doing well, the more that blesses me and encourages me in my situation and uh, encourages them just basic Christian humility. He uses himself for an example, and this is where he <laughs> uses the word skubala, which is the Greek word for S ends in a T, all right? I mean, it's the crudest word you can use. It's the word he literally used. It's funny to uh, study this online because there are American Christians who are just fit to be tied who say they can't possibly, he couldn't have possibly been cursing. But the point is, it wasn't cursing. It's not cursing. They never considered those kind of words cursing. Cursing is taking God's name in vain. What you did with body parts and etc. was of little consequence to them. It only became a big deal to American Christians or Western Christians until about the 1800s. And then everybody started getting real paranoid about it. And now, and still to this day, you know, everybody gets all freaked out. So uh, we talked about 
the scuba of life. Scuba, oh, by the way. <laughs> Check this out. Scuba happens, man. Isn't that funny? So I went online, actually, and I thought, I can't possibly be the first guy who thought of this. All right? So uh, I just went on and Googled Scuba happens, and these websites pop up. There's all kinds of things. So I bought this already made. I didn't do it. So you can buy them online if you want one. Go get one. Scuba happens, baby. So I, I think, you know, <clears throat> there's some young theological students who figured that out and started laughing and started making it happen. So it's fairly well known among students of the Bible that that is the word he used. Uh, then he gets to the end of the uh, letter to the Philippians and he starts talking about, look, uh, I've learned the secret to life and the secret is to be content. He says, I've learned to be content, content no matter what my circumstances, whether good, bad, whatever. And that's when he says, I can do all these things through Christ who gives me strength. We often use that verse as a, I can go conquer the world verse. And I guess you can use it in that way, but really the context is I can handle a sucky life verse. You know, when life is hard, I can handle it. When the scuba is hitting the fan, I can handle it. I can deal with it, all right? Because I can do all this stuff. It doesn't matter. My contentment doesn't come from things. It doesn't come from situations. If you're the kind of person who always lives in the world of I'd rather be, you'll always be disappointed. Oh, if I only had this, if only if that hadn't happened, oh, if I hadn't made that dumb decision, living in the back, as I talk about Sunday, hands looking back, you know, like Lot's wife, looking back constantly, living in their past, you live a defeated Christian life in, in that situation. The thing is too, as Paul said here in Philippians, I look forward forgetting what is behind me. That's the key to be content. You don't need things to be a certain way for you to be happy. There's a lot of people that do, a lot of wonderful devout Christians that that's their thing. <clears throat> I remember <laughs> once we were in a, I think it was when we first came to Green Bay some years ago, and uh, we had a house we had to sell, and the stupid house wouldn't sell. Dumb house. And, uh, and, and we were asking people to pray with us about the house. And I'll never forget how many people came up to me and said, oh, you, and being empathetic and being really nice and encouraging, saying, you must feel so bad that your house hasn't sold. I remember looking at them thinking, Really? No, because they would. They would be depressed. They would be bummed out. Life would be sucked right out of their souls because something happened, hadn't happened the way they happened. Uh, I now remember finally we sold the house. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I mean, people were running up to me and saying, oh, you must be so happy now that your house is sold. I'm thinking, no, you know. And it just struck me so much. I think, what a sucky way to live. I don't want to live that way. You mean to tell me your life, your joy goes up and down based on whether or not you can sell a house, based on whether or not your car is working, based on whether or not this insurance covers something, based on whether or not what the doctor says, what you want to hear, really? That you're failing. You're gonna, just life will suck the life out of you. You need to learn to be content no matter what. So how can I do that? Through Christ. Paul says I can do all these things who Christ, through Christ who gives me strength. And the main focus is not to be focusing on this life. You do realize, I say that knowing most do not, you do realize we're just passing through here, right? This life, in the terms of eternity, if this is eternity, okay, this is the beginning, this is the end, there is no end, obviously, to eternity, but if this is eternity, your entire life can't even be measured here. 
and you're spending all your energy, all your life, all your frustration, everything, ah, living here. Don't do that. You need to be looking and thinking towards eternity. This is a temporary stop for us, which is what Paul is going to allude to in just a second. We'll pick it up now at verse 14 in chapter 4. After he says, I can do all these things through Christ who gives me strength. He says, yet it was good for you to share in my troubles. It was nice. Now, thanks. You know, no, I mean, I prefer not to have trouble. I don't like trouble. I'm just saying my joy isn't sucked out if I have trouble. Okay, you get it clear? I don't, man, I don't like my fries to be cold. I don't like to be inconvenienced. I hate all that stuff, but it doesn't suck the life out of me. So he says, but he's grateful that they shared with his troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, uh, when I set out from Macedonia, which is this area we're just talking about up here, Macedonia. Um, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you guys. Nobody gave me a dime. <laughs> Little cheap rats. <laughs> you know, cough up some cash, Jack. Help this guy out. Nobody did it except the Philippians. A great credit to them and a bit of a rebuke to the others. Um, for even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid uh, more than once when I, was, when I was in need. So the Thessalonians, which he got along really well with, uh, which is here. Even when he got here, they weren't helping him, and the Philippians did. So, in all fairness to these other churches, Paul often told them, I don't want to take any money from you. <laughs> it was kind of a catch-22, you know. And so they, but he was happy when they helped out. Okay, so, not that I desire your gifts. I'm not looking for your money. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. Now, here we're talking about eternity. The Lord spoke in very clear terms, talking about laying up treasures in heaven. What we do here on this earth is what gets credited one way or another into eternity. I think if we had a clue, and, and some of us might want to just pray, Lord, open my eyes. Help me understand what that means. Because if I think we really understand what that means, we would be more intentional in this life. When we realize what is going to be given to us on the other side. So he says, it wasn't that I was really looking for money from you, but the fact that you're doing this gave uh, credit to your account. So that the work that he does, they shared credit in it. Okay? When you help someone's ministry, you help share in the blessings and the rewards of that ministry. When you give to your church, you're giving, you're sharing in the blessings and the rewards of that church. Missions groups, different things that we do. This is things that we do that help either of your time, of your talent, or of your treasure, money, whatever. All these things you're giving, you're investing because we're looking past here. If you don't look past here, you wouldn't do that. Why would you do that? Why would you give any money away? Good grief, hang on to everything, right? I need it all for me. Gimme, give gimme, give gimme, give gimme, gimme. It's all mine, 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 mine. Because I gotta get through here, I gotta have this, and what happens if this happens, I need to surround myself and get my retirement and everything. So if you're only concerned with this life, you will be obsessed by those things. And the converse is true. If you are obsessed by that thing, those things, it means you're looking too much into this life. Don't be so obsessed by this. And there's some people are. Oh my goodness, I... I'd hate to live that way. I don't know how you have some of y'all <laughs> live that way. Just everything is <laughs> about money and retirement and this and that. Just, I get you want to be smart. I'm all cool with that. But not everything is about just this life. You want to lay up treasures in heaven. 
This is what Jesus talked about. This is what Paul talks about. I love the fact that you gave because now that gets credited to your account. Where your account? At Sears Roebuck? No. By the way, I hear they're going out of business. It's not Sears Roebuck. It's not Amazon. It's not where the credit. The credit is in eternity in heaven. That's a place when you kick out of this place, you want to see that you have a nice account on the other side and not jack squat. All right. He says, I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am, uh, I am amply supplied now that I've received from Ephrodites the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. All right. I see a lot of you guys as bad as a Green Bay group. <laughs> Bring your Bible with you, you slackers. Bring your, you should get familiar with this, at least, or on, your, you know, on the phone, so you really get familiar with the context, not just the magic words on the screen. All right, and then he wraps it up. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. What does that mean? Well, Caesar owned everything. <laughs> And these people work for Caesar, and it's all part of the, you know, Roman Empire thing. So all these people, send your greetings. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. And that is that. So we finish this letter to the Philippians. Now let's go uh, back to Acts, the 25th chapter. This is where we left off. Uh, after two years, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. Okay, Felix Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. That's how chapter 24 ends. So now let's start at chapter 25. Now, three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Remember, they always consider Jerusalem the center. So they're going up to there, away from the coast. And I myself, whoops, went up there from Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him. Festus, all right, he's in charge around here and presented their charges against Paul. They requested Festus as a favor to them. Look, do us a favor. Have Paul transformed, transferred to Jerusalem. Really? Why don't you just do that? We're meeting here. Why don't you cut us some slack? Why don't you send him here? Now, you remember how he wound up there in the first place? They found out that they were trying to get him to transfer one place to the other, and they had a whole bunch of guys that were going to wait and, and uh, kill him. All right? Well, they got the same plan again. Which, which we'll see here. So he says, can you, do, can you do that to Jerusalem? For there, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. So they're already up to no good. They're asking for Paul to come here. Why don't you do that? Because they got these guys who are going to go kill him. Uh, but Festus doesn't buy uh, into that. Festus answers, Paul is being held at Caesarea. And I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me. And if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. Now, Paul is being uh, much more protected than a lot of them were protected. A lot of persecution was on the church. Uh, it suffered terribly at times. Um, you know, some were stoned to death, arrested, their properties taken away. Do you know why Paul was being so protected? Anybody remember? He's what? He's a Roman citizen, see. Saul of Tarsus, he was born here in Tarsus, we don't know under what circumstances, but he says, I was freeborn. He's a freeborn Roman citizen. 
It's like the difference between being an American citizen and having the protections of the Constitution and being some foreigner from somewhere. You know, that theoretically, of course, in our country, it's all jacked up, but, uh, you know, uh, it's totally different. So, Paul has got all this protection because he is a Roman citizen. So, we're going to leave him at Caesarea, come there, and we'll deal with it there. Well, after spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea, goes down to the coast. The next day, he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, and they brought many serious charges against him, but they couldn't prove any of them. So they're just blathering. Well, he said this, who isn't? But there was no evidence. They could not, no one was offering evidence. It's just people's testimonies. So then Paul made his defense. He steps forward and says, I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. He has broken no laws. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, well, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges. So now Festus is thinking, well, maybe I'll cut these guys' this favor because they want him to come to Jerusalem because they want to kill him. And Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. And then he utters these very important words, I appeal to Caesar. Once he does that, it's a big deal. Now all kinds of legal stuff is kicked in. Uh, it would be like if you're arrested by the police and they're questioning you and at some point you demand that you want to see your attorney. The minute you do that, they have to stop questioning you and they have to cough up an attorney or let you get your own attorney. It's that kind of thing. So he knows now that, and, and whether or not he knows whether the Lord revealed to him or last time somebody warned him they were trying to kill him, maybe the same thing's happening, or he's just a smart guy. He figured it out. I leave this place, they're going to kill me, right? So as, as a last minute desperate act, because now when he does this, there's no way for him to get out. They can't just hear the case and let him go. And we're going to hear in a little bit that at one point, one of these kings says, you know, man, we could let him go. But he appealed to Caesar, so we can't. So now he has to be drugged all the way back to Rome. But he knows if I don't pull this card, he says to Jerusalem, I'm toast. All right, so after Festus had conferred with his council, he declared... In the very Roman way, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar, you will go. And there we have it. Now, a few days later, King Agrippa, Agrippa, this is Herod Agrippa, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Now, who's this guy? You know, it's really confusing as you read through the New Testament because you're constantly running into Herod. Herod this, Herod that, but Herod was dead, and another Herod died. Who the heck are all these Herods? All right? So what this is, and I'm, I'm, I don't know this will benefit anybody, but I wanted to do it because I found it very curious to myself, trying to figure out all these goofy Herods. So let me try and see if I can <laughs> explain this uh, to you. The first Herod was called Herod the Great. This is the guy who starts it. So this is the Herodian chain. Now, Herod the Great was a narcissistic monster of unbelievable 
the proportions. This is the one who's there when Jesus is born. This is the one that the wise men came to and said, hey, we're trying to find where the king of the Jews is being born. And, you know, we saw his star in the sky. And Herod says, oh, really? Uh, when you find him, let me know so I can come worship too because he wanted to come kill him. Well, the Lord warns the three wise men. Three wise men. We don't have any wise men. The wise men. And they went another way. When Herod found out about it, he was torqued. So then he sends his soldiers into Bethlehem and orders that all little boys two years and under would be killed. <clears throat> I mean, what a monster. This guy was a narcissistic freak of the highest order. Uh, he had, as far as I know, many of his own family members killed. Uh, a lot of these kings and stuff lived in constant paranoia and fear of losing their power. But when you fear a prophecy about someone who might become, and the guy's a geezer by this time anyway, but hearing about some kid who could grow up and become king, he would rather kill every child in Bethlehem, every boy, than run the risk <clears throat> that this child could grow up and become a king and challenge uh, his power. Uh, so Herod, uh, best as I can tell, Herod was, uh, was Jewish or had a Jewish father or something, enough that, you know, that's why they gave him, uh, they made him king, the Romans did, over Judea and Jerusalem and all that kind of stuff. So Herod the psychotic is what I call him. But he was called Herod the Great. Now Herod the Great had uh, at least five wives. And I think as I was reading this, he had ten. But the only ones that really matter are the first five. All right. So, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, their name, Doris, uh, Miriam, and another Miriam. So wives two and three had the first, same first name. Look, confusing. Uh, Mal Malthus or whatever, and Cleopatra. But this is not the, the cool Cleopatra you read about in history you know, that's Julius Caesar and Mark Anthony were hanging out with, you know, that kind of stuff. That was a different uh, uh, Cleopatra. So anyway, so what we're going to do here is, is uh, Miriam, number one, <laughs> has uh, a son by the name of Aristobulus, whatever, okay? So here he has a son. And then from there... Uh, he has three kids. We're going to only concern ourselves with two. One is Herod Agrippa, which you'll read about in the Bible. Okay? How do you spell Agrippa? G-I-P-P-A. So Herod Agrippa and a daughter named Herodias. So anyway, you can see already... The, the guys, I don't know how this guy got away with it, but the, usually the guys were named Herod something. Herod. It's kind of like George Foreman. All his kids are named George. <laughs> so, and even the girls, George Edward. So the guys are named Herod and the girls are named Herodias. All right? Now, um, the other one is, uh, we're going to skip these other ones, but uh, Miriam too. Bring it over here. She has a son by the name of Philip. Well, with the first name Herod as well, Herod, Philip. Okay. Now, Herodias marries her uncle, which is kind of creepy. All right. But that's, that's what, what they did. Um, 
wife, <laughs> the next wife has a son by the name of Herod Antipas. We'll just put Antipas here. All this will make sense in a second. So why are you doing all this? Just kind of give you an idea where some of these people come from. So Herod Antipas, whoa, Herod Antipas is the guy that arrested John the Baptist and cut off his head. The reason being is what happens is Herodias marries Philip, marries her uncle. And by the way, up until just even 100 years ago, all these kings and queens all throughout Europe and all over the world married very close relatives. Nieces, uh, you know, cousins, first cousins, big time, stepsisters and so I mean, they really, it was a family dynasty and they kept it all very, very closely held. So Herodias marries Philip. Then at some point, Herodias, oh, and, and she has uh, a daughter by the name of Sal, Salmo, Salomo, Salome, Salome is a daughter. Okay, so she then goes and she goes shacks up with him. So we don't know what happened here, but when John the Baptist heard about it, that's when John the Baptist got in Herod's face, which is this Herod, Herod Antipas, because this one's dead already. So now Herod Antipas, he's in power. John the Baptist comes and says, it is immoral for you to have your brother Philip's wife. If you remember the story, that's what he's yelling about, okay? So uh, Herodias now is over here with uh, little Salome. We'll give her the S. Um, so she hates John the Baptist because he's calling what she's doing as immoral. It is immoral. It's disgusting. First of all, it's creepy marrying your uncle. Now you go shack up with the other uncle. What's all that about? We got a lot of creepy issues going on here. Well then, this is when uh, Herod Antipas has Salome dance for them. Remember? Oh, no, 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 no. So he's doing this. So he gets all the hots for this lady who's, not, who's a distant whatever to him and offers her anything she wants. That's when she asks for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. All right, so that's where all that comes. That's where all these psychos are, okay? Now, um, Agrippa, am I right? Yeah. So Herod Agrippa, now, he is the guy who's like one of the first persecutors of the Christian church. We read in the beginning of the book of Acts where Herod has James, the apostle, arrested and killed. And it made the Jews so happy, he thought, let's go kill some more of them. So he arrests Peter. So Peter comes, he's arrested, he thinks he's going to be toast. That's when an angel shows up, remember, knocks the doors open, he gets out of there. I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing uh, how he escaped, but he escaped the clutches of Herod Agrippa. And Herod Agrippa was such a narcissist, much like you-know-who, that he's out one day speaking, the Bible says in the book of Acts, he's speaking to all these people, and these people, they're just all sucking up to him. Oh, it's the voice of a God. It's not the voice of a man. He goes, yes, of course, I'm very God-like. And the Bible says that God really got ticked that he was being so arrogant and struck him with some kind of disease, and he died from worms. <laughs> of all the ways to go. Usually you should die, and then the worms get you. In this case, the worms got him first, and then he died, and I guess the other worms finished him off. But from Herod, Agrippa comes uh, two more kids. We have Agrippa. 
Number two, and a daughter named Bernice. There's another guy too, but we don't care about him either. All right, so here's where we're at now. Agrippa, Agrippa II, is now the grandson of Herod the Great. And these guys are dying like flies from what are the, you know, judgment or somebody's knocking them off in the family or whatever like that. <clears throat> so, in the book of Acts now here, we read about Agrippa and Bernice arrive in Caesarea. So the power is being passed down. This is Agrippa now. He's the grandson. Bernice, it sounds like it's his queen, but it's not his queen. It's just Agrippa and his sister, Bernice, who also had a lot of power. That's who these people are. So all these Herods and stuff are different guys at different times, and the whole thing's all extremely twisted. These were the royalty, if you will, over Jerusalem and all the Jews in that whole part of the world, uh, given to them by the Roman Empire. So they were suck-ups to Rome. Uh, most Jews didn't like them. Uh, and anyway, so that's, that's who these people are. I think it ends at Agrippa II, and after that, I think uh, Rome pulled the plug on all of them. And it wasn't too much later that Rome came and invaded Jerusalem and killed almost everybody. So... That's where this King Herod Agrippa comes from. Different than the first King Herod Agrippa that got eaten by worms. That's all really rather confusing. All right, so picking up verse 13. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrive in Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He's now the king, this, this Agrippa. Festus discussed Paul. Oh, so he said, there's a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. The first guy, Felix, and then Festus comes in. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they've faced their accusers and have had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. This is some of the earliest uh, representation of a democracy and citizenship and stuff like that, which we even have to this day. When you're arrested, you have the right to face your accusers and all that kind of stuff. This goes actually all the way back to Greece and to, and to Rome, um, which was still really rad rather radical at the time, because before that, nobody had anything. It's just whatever the king said, you had no rights at all. Uh, but they have a certain degree of rights now as Romans, but it's only for Roman citizens. Everybody else is dog meat, <laughs> okay? Nobody else has any rights, and they can do anything they want to them at any given time. Uh, you know, you bug them, a soldier can stick you through a sword, and you're dead, and, you know, such and such. They could arrest you, they could beat the snot out of you, and they did frequently. The common way of capital punishment was, of course, the cross, the very cross, same cross that Jesus had died on, that's that same type of cross. And they routinely crucified people who broke the laws and didn't do what they wanted them to do, or they'd take them and they'd have them whipped like Jesus was whipped. I mean, this was common uh, treatment by, by the Romans. They were pretty brutal. But not if you're a Roman citizen, which is what Paul is. So he gets the benefit that's much more like an American would have benefit today. So, all right. So uh, when they came here with me to Caesarea, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion 
And about some dead guy <laughs> named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. I mean, it's all very confusing to uh, poor Festus here. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. But when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, that's when he appealed to Caesar, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. So he's bringing Agrippa, this new king, up to speed uh, on what's going on. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. And Festus said, well, tomorrow you will hear him. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice come in la, 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 with great pomp and circumstance and enter the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, Caesar, I decided to send him to Rome. My problem is I have nothing definite uh, to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I've brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. Well, of course not. Caesar's going to see him and say, what's he doing here? What'd he do? Oh, I don't know. They just made me, you know, so they didn't want to look like idiots in front of Caesar. So he wants to get his ducks in a row and figure out what's going on. Chapter 26. Now then Agrippa said to Paul, Okay, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. You notice whenever they're speaking in front of a king or something like that, they all kiss up big time. First thing they do. Oh, it's so nice that you're here. You're so wonderful. You're fabulous. We all have pictures of you at home. We think you're great, all right? We are a fabulous guy. So glad that uh, I can talk to you today. And I'm going to make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Why would he be well accustomed? Well, because he has Jewish lineage and he is king over that whole area. So he actually knows more about this stuff than Festus. I'm not exactly sure where Festus comes from. I presume he's uh, sent from somewhere in the Roman Empire. So he seemed to be kind of at a loss for what's going on. But I'm glad that you're here, king, because you know these things. When I'm talking about you, you have an understanding of these things. Uh, you're well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child. From the beginning of my life in my own country, which was of course back here in Tarsus, all the way also into Jerusalem. He was a bit of a prodigy, a bit of a rock star. Everybody knew who this kid was. His whole family came from good stock. He had lived an exemplary life and had climbed way up the social ladder, all of which 
Paul eventually said, as far as I'm concerned, it's a big pile of scuba. All right? He said, now they've known me for a long time and can testify if they are willing that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. There were two major sects. There were Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees were more strict. And that's what he did. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised to our ancestors that I'm on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. The promise he's referring to is that of the Messiah. Okay? Agrippa would know this, knowing that this is what the Jews are all looking for. Now, I don't think he believed any more than the man in the moon, although Paul says, I know you believe in the prophets. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was more of a suck-up than anything else, but these were very corrupt people. Uh, but he knew what he was talking about. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Remember? Festus goes, he's talking about some dead guy that's supposed to be alive now. He didn't know what the heck he's talking about. And he's saying to Agrippa, who's supposed to understand Jewish traditions and rules and laws and the power of God, why would anybody be shocked that God raises the dead? Because, if, in fact, throughout Jewish history, there had been people who had been raised from the dead. The difference, of course, between them and Jesus is they were raised from the dead and then they had to die again. So, you know, it's kind of a win-loss situation. <laughs> good news, bad news. The good news, you're alive again. The bad news is you get to die all over again at some point, okay? Because when Jesus was resurrected, it was once and for all a glorified body never to die again. But he didn't get into all those details. He said, why would you be surprised God raises the dead? You guys know God raises the dead. Our prophets have raised the dead. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So he continues with his personal testimony. And just so you know, everybody understand, the greatest story you have is your story. And it's, it's hard for people to dispute your story. People might argue with you about the Bible. People might argue with you about Christianity. People might argue about theological thoughts, this, that, and the other, blah, blah, blah. Well, what about this? What about that? And, you know, but it's hard for them to argue about your story when you tell your story of how you came to know Christ and the difference he made in your life. So Paul starts out with all this and then he goes for the gold, the most powerful thing he has, which is his personal story. And it's rather dramatic. So he says, look, I, I thought I should do everything to oppose this Jesus of Nazareth. I was part of the Pharisees. I was part of this whole system. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. First one we put to death was Stephen, that we read about in Acts. And that's when we first was introduced to the character of Paul, who at the time his name was Saul. So when you go back and you read the story of Stephen being stoned to death, the first Christian martyr, and then they laid all their, their testimony and stuff at the feet of Saul, who was approving of this act. And, uh, and they needed someone to approve of it, so then he approved of it. Again, they weren't Roman citizens. You could just take them and stone them, right? Now, many a time I went from, uh, from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I, everywhere he went, 
he was arresting Christians. He would force them, I presume, I don't know, torture. I mean, I don't know what he did to him. I mean, he's, he feels very bad about it and at times talks about how bad he feels that at one time he persecuted and tormented the very people he loves now because he became a Christian. So, but this is his story. Yeah, I tried to force him to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. He was intense. He was the chief number one antagonist of Christianity in the early days. This was the guy. This was the guy who hated Christians and did everything he can to uh, chase them down. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, I was on the road. I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. By the way, Jesus spoke in Aramaic. Uh, and Paul understood, Paul spoke many languages, so Jesus spoke to him in Aramaic. <clears throat> the only movie I'm ever aware of that has been shot in Aramaic. Anybody know what it is? Passion of the Christ. That's why the whole thing's in subtitles. They're not speaking Jewish. They're not speaking Greek. They're not speaking Latin. They're speaking Aramaic in that uh, movie. So he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute? It's hard for you to kick against the goats. Now the goat is something you would use to goat an animal, a horse. It would be much like spurs that a cowboy would have. An animal may not want to cooperate until you... And then, oh, then the thing will behave. It's hard to fight being goaded. And apparently God has been goading him. <laughs> we don't know what was happening up to this point. But he says, hey, it's kind of hard to kick against this, isn't it? Particularly when you're laying on the floor, blinded. You remember initially he lost his sight. It was so bright he couldn't see anything. And then I asked, who are you, Lord? He had no idea who's talking to me. Can you imagine the shock? He is there. He hates Christians. He is the number one persecutor of Christians in the world at that time. He's going everywhere. He's obsessed with destroying them. He's going from city to city, getting permission to go into the city, find these people who have no rights and make their lives a living hell, throw them in prison, do whatever. And this guy, and he hears this voice. He says, who are you? And when he heard these next words, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Can you imagine? Holy cow. Whoa. What a shock. I mean, the, man, I would love to know what happened in his head when he heard that. And the Lord tells him, now get up. Stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, whenever Paul was preaching and he got to this part of the Gentiles, he told me to go and preach faith to the Gentiles. That's when the Jews would riot and try and kill him. As I pointed out many times, people often say that 
Jews had a problem believing Jesus was the Messiah. They did not. They did not have a problem. I mean, some of them did, but that wasn't what they struggled. There were many, all the initial Christians were Jews in the first place. Paul could stand in front of all these Jews and preach the gospel of Jesus raising from the dead, God doing this, God doing this. And no one said boo until he'd get to his commission where he told me to preach to the Gentiles and then they'd go crazy. What really insulted them more than anything is that people like you and my, you and me could come to faith simply in God and not have to do all the rules that they had to do. <clears throat> they just couldn't, they couldn't get their heads around it. And that was the big stumbling block. Of course, nobody riots here because they're in front of King Agrippa. <laughs> Nobody's misbehaving now, <laughs> okay? Because this king has the power of life and death over these people. So he is telling his story. Hard to argue with his story. I mean, you could say, you know, you're crazy. It didn't happen, which is what the king's about to tell him. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, it's hard to argue against someone's personal experience. Always, when you get a chance, people ask you about God, at some point, try to find a way to get to your story. Let me tell you why I believe what I believe. And I may not even have the best argument, but let me tell you why I'm compelled to think in this way, why I'm compelled to believe the Bible. And share your story of how God changed your life, took away whatever was hurting inside of you, filled you with life, gave you purpose. I mean, whatever your story is, I don't know. Some of you have dramatic stories. Some of you don't have really dramatic stories, but it's your story nonetheless. And it's powerful. And uh, look for an opportunity to share your story. If there's one thing you ought to be able to do, you may not know a whole lot of Bible verses, especially if you're fairly new to this, but one thing you should be able to tell people is why you are where you're at right now. What has God done in your life? What things have changed for you? That is your story. And if you don't have that story, you need to work on it because that's, that's the most powerful thing you have. So Paul's going on now after hearing these words from Jesus. He says, so then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. King James Bible, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. That's where they said. A lot of preachers preach from this verse. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. And they preach about, what is your vision? What has God spoken into your heart? Are you being obedient to what God's called you to do? It's a great sermon, right? But that's their text. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. So anyway, first to those in Damascus is where I'm supposed to go. Then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea and then to the Gentiles where everybody had a fit. And I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds, which by the way, is something that people should be doing. How do you know someone actually is repenting? Because they change the way they act, right? If you still do this, you come to church, say, Lord, forgive me, and you go out and do the exact same things over and over again, I would highly question if you've repented at all. Part of the thing about repenting is we should be able to demonstrate that, in fact, we have changed. I am now acting differently. Now, we still might struggle. Everybody's got their deal. I get it. Uh, but to start acting in ways that demonstrate, hey, God is really at work in me. And the truth is, people should see that in you, the ones who know you. That's one of the most powerful stories, actually. You don't even have to tell them the story. They're seeing it. You know, wow, what happened to you? Why don't you want to do that anymore? What do you mean? How come this? How come that? And they're watching you. And uh, whereas you're angry and bitter and cursing every five seconds, all of a sudden you're not doing that anymore. That's powerful to them. You were the party girl. You'd be at every party 
drinking until you puked and hitting on every boy for 100 miles, but you don't do that anymore. Wow, what happened to you? These demonstrations of your behavior is a powerful, powerful thing. So, uh, that's what I'm doing. And in verse 21, that is why some of the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. <clears throat> Primarily because he was going to the Gentiles with the story that they could repent and know God. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. He was familiar with the Old Testament and all these Jewish leaders there all knew it like the back of their hands. But Moses has always said that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of the light of his own people and to the Gentiles. The, the, several places. In fact, even Abraham, as we've been studying on Sunday morning, what's the story of Abraham? That all the nations of the world would be blessed through your seed. And they would point out, it wasn't just the one nation, it was all nations. Even though God set aside one nation that the Messiah would come through, gave them the rules, the Ten Commandments, everything, so they could really straighten out. But this is to go to all people. And this is what the scripture said. The Old Testament was full of this. The New Testament is really not a new, oh, just pulled out of the air, concept. This is all the practical application of what was told here would happen. So it all ties together. All right? And uh, that's the power of the consistency of the entire scriptures. Uh, da, 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 da. So he said that the Messiah would suffer and he would be the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus, not King Agrippa, but Festus, the other guy, because he doesn't know jack about what they're talking about. He interrupts Paul's defense and says, you're out of your mind, Paul. He shouts this, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you insane. Because you've got too much education. I can think of a few people I quote that to. Actually, I quote that to my brother all the time. <laughs> He's got his high degrees. Of, I always say to him, your learning has made you mad, which is the King James Version. because he knows what I'm talking about. It's just one brother slamming another. It's what we do. Uh, your learning has made you mad. So anyway, and then Paul says, no, 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 I'm not insane. Most excellent Festus. Paul replied, what I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things. And I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. You have to understand, these kings, all the, you know, Herod knew about Jesus. I don't even know who this cat was. Uh, you know, Agrippa knew. Certainly Agrippa II, all these things that happened, Jesus' life, the miracles he did. You know, the one wanted to uh, uh, have... Uh, Jesus performed a miracle for him. Remember when we went to Pontius Pilate? And he goes over to the other one. Uh, I hope we do some magic act or something like that. They all knew this hasn't, wasn't done in a corner. All of this Christianity, all these miracles that Jesus did, the words he spoke, the movement, the Christian movement, all these things that is plain to everyone. This is like a big deal that's happening in culture and society. They all knew about it. At some point, the Romans felt so threatened by it that they opened up the gates of hell and just rained terror on Christians for quite some time. 
That's where they were being arrested, hunted down, thrown into the Colosseum, thrown to lions, used as bait for the, uh, you know, the games and stuff like that. It was a horrible, horrible time. They were hiding in the catacombs and stuff. Boy, if you ever go to Italy, Rome, Italy, uh, all this stuff is, a lot of it's just still there. You can actually go down into the catacombs where they're hidden. You can see the Colosseum is still standing amazingly 2,000 years later. I mean, all of that stuff. It was amazing about the culture over like in Europe and stuff. In America, if something gets old, we tear it down. Those guys never did. They'd keep buildings and you'd be walking along and one minute you're on, <clears throat> on a beautifully paved blacktop and stuff like that. The next minute you're walking on cobbled stones and stuff that were laid there by the Romans. They still drive their cars on them. They don't tear it up. They keep it. You know, you'll be driving, you know, here's a Kentucky Fried Chicken and right next to it is, a, is an old fountain that was put there by the Romans. And they're, they're, it's still there and it's still, water's still coming out of it. Whatever it is, you know. It's fascinating. It's a great place to go if you ever want to go to check out something amazing. Uh, Rome is an amazing city uh, to see all of these things. So he says, King Agrippa, he says, so this, this hasn't been an order. He's, he's talking to Festus. Festus he thinks he's crazy. I'm not crazy. The king knows what I'm talking about. He's aware of these things. These things aren't done in a corner. And then he says to the king this. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Well, <laughs> my guess is he's sucking up. I don't, know. <laughs> I don't know what Agrippa knew at all. He's just a narcissistic king. And then Agrippa said to Paul, whoa, whoa, do you, do you think that in such a short time, you can persuade me to be a Christian? They knew who these Christians were. They knew who these people were. You know, whoa, you know, you've got this one testimony. Because I promise you, in this moment, because this is the one thing that Jesus told his disciples, when you are arrested and they drag you before uh, governors and kings, whatever trials, never think ahead of time about what you're supposed to say. He says the Holy Spirit will tell you the moment you're supposed to say it. And this is done all. So I'm, I promise you, the power of the Holy Spirit is permeating this room. Imagine the coolest moment that you've ever felt the presence of God. The neatest sermon, the best worship service. I mean, it's like you can cut it with a knife. You're crying. It's like, I mean, the most amazing I can feel God moment. Jack that up by 10 at least. I bet you this place, it was so thick you could cut it with a knife. As Paul is proclaiming the gospel in crystal clear, powerful terms and simple terms that anybody could grasp. He's not getting into the law. He's not getting all these stuff because even though some of the people listening to him don't even understand that stuff. He's keeping this message simple. This is what happened to me. It's what the Bible talked about. Jesus fulfilled that. He is alive today. You believe, don't you? Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Do you think that in such a short time, you can persuade me to be a Christian. I'll bet the pressure was on. The power of God was there. The presence of God was touching this guy's heart, and he's kind of fighting against it. And Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today, and he's talking to everybody. He's got this whole palace group is being mesmerized, listening to him talk about the simple, powerful faith in Jesus Christ. So not only you, but all who listen to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. You know, I wish you were just like me, obviously not, not in prison, but to have this connection with God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, the king arose, and uh, with him the governor and 
Bernice and those sitting with them. And after they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. And Agrippa says to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Because they can't stop it now. Now, if Paul knew <laughs> that Agrippa was going to say this the next day or two, he may not have appealed to Caesar. I don't know. But all he knows is that they're trying to get him back to Jerusalem. He knows what happens in the situation. His life is not safe. It was finally he pulled the great Roman citizen card. I appeal to Caesar. You've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar. You will go. And we're fascinating. Then we get to chapter 27. We'll pick this up next week. Now this, there's only like two chapters left. So we'll probably finish the book of Acts uh, next week. Uh, but uh, I, I pointed out that if, if you look at the beginning of the book of Acts, it's much like most of the Bible. They don't give you a lot of detail. Kind of this happened, that happened, this happened, that happened. And you're kind of like, well, what happened? You know, I mean, these guys stayed just to the basic facts. They didn't give much filler. I, for example, the disciples. I would love to hear their story. Really? You're on this boat. You see this guy come walking to you on the water. Ah! What were you doing? Were you hiding? Did you cry? Did you jump trying to swim away? What are you, I mean, they're freaking out. I would have, man, I would have wrote, man, 20 pages on what happened next. And, this, and then Jonathan went, oh, no! Peter, oh! You know, all they say is, you know, he looked like a ghost and we were afraid. A little more detail, right? I want more detail. But when we get to where Luke joins Paul, the detail jumps dramatically. And while we're telling this play-by-play -play of what's going on from the time Luke, this happened and we weren't there and we saw this guy and this guy said that and this guy, I mean, the level of detail here is really rather stunning. The next chapter is the coup d'etat. Luke writes about Paul's journey being drugged all the way up here and what happens to him during the sail journey. It is one, it's written, it, it, at times it feels like a novel. It's the closest novel-like feel that you will find probably anywhere in the scriptures. Because in great detail, he tells you what happened and then this happened and then the wind started blowing and then we did this and then we did that and oh, then this is, it's like dun, 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 you wait for the music to kick in. You know what I'm saying? So it's, this is really the, the culmination of the detail because obviously Luke is there. He remembered what happened next and who said what next and what happened as he's on this boat and it crashes, it sinks. And uh, it's this dramatic storm and, and you can just feel it. I mean, they are scared to death. We're all gonna die. Uh, talks about how they handled the cargo and what they did and how many nights this. And on the 14th night, we were driven across the Adriatic Sea. And about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land and they started measuring. And they talked about the measurements, how deep it was. And they took it in. I mean, it's really interesting, okay? So we'll give you that play-by-play -play next week when we pick it up as we wrap up the book of Acts. We will then go to the next letters that uh, theologians say were written in the order they were written. Uh, but the book of Acts then stops. And, and we don't know. We don't have that kind of detail anymore. It ends when Paul finally gets 
uh, taken to Rome. In Rome, he writes these other epistles and letters, and we'll, we'll go through that and stuff like that. And uh, fascinating. I was thinking maybe when we were done with this, it would be kind of interesting. I, I'll see what I can learn about it and how much is out there, but uh, it would be great to just do, there's no scriptures for it because this is, I would just like to do a, a, maybe a study what history says happens next. You know, what were the early Christians after Paul, after all this was written, what happened to the early Christians? Because at some point they get really jacked up. You know, Christianity really starts taking some crazy turns. You get to the 1500s, the Catholic Church is out of control. They've just so many corrupt things. That's when Martin Luther comes along and says, this is nuts. He starts the Protestant Reformation. It shocks the Catholics. It kind of jerks the slack out of them and got them away from a lot of their crazy. But to this day, there's some fundamental differences between what they think. But how did all that happen? How did we get from this stuff that we're reading about to praying to saints and praying to Mary and putting holy water on our heads and all this stuff. Where did all this stuff come from? Because you notice none of it is in here. All right? And uh, so we might do kind of a, a post study a little bit on, on what history says happened to the, uh, to the church. But we got a long ways to go yet. There's still a lot of epistles to go through. Then we'll eventually end with the big one, the letter or the uh, Revelation, book of Revelations, where he writes about the end times. And that one's pretty heavy. <laughs> we'll see how I do <laughs> when we get to that. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the encouragement of your word. Lord, it, it fires us up. It gives us confidence. Thank you for the testimony of those who have gone before us and lived this out and, and even gave up their lives trusting you to the very end. Thank you for their words, their encouragement. Help us to learn your promises. Help us to be inspired and encouraged by the very thoughts that they had, the experiences that they had, because we still serve the same amazing, wonderful God that they served. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said amen. See you guys next Wednesday night.